Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I'm a psychotherapist, teacher, consultant, and most importantly, a wounded healer living and working in Chicago, Illinois. On this show, I interview folks in a variety of healing professions, and we discuss the intersectional journey of healing self while caring for others. We're not just focused on individual healing, but also healing on the collective level from white supremacy, late-stage capitalism, and the patriarchy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, my dears. How is your heart? I hope that you've been doing okay with all that's going on in the world. Thank you for being here, for sharing your time with me, for listening to our guest today, which I will tell you about momentarily. But first, this is my first time back behind the mic since the Highland Park shooting, which now I think it's been nearly a month. But uh, I haven't talked about it on here yet, so I wanted to share... I guess what could be considered a not so popular, <laughs> I guess, take. Um, I mean, obviously, the shooting is terrible, awful, horrible, devastating, terrifying, made me angry and had all the emotions that go along with any shooting. It was more scary, of course, because it was literally, you know, up the highway from me. I have a friend that lives up in Highland Park, and I know a lot of people who were impacted in many ways. The thing I want to talk about isn't really the shooting, but our human response to the shooting. So in Chicago, we have a really, really amazing network of therapists, and we all converge in this group on Facebook. And it was really interesting to see what unfolded after the Highland Park shooting and the ways that people responded. And there ended up being a lot of controversy, a lot of anger at one another, and I guess that's the part that I really want to talk about today. So it became clear to me as I was watching people, you know, everyone was saying, like, let's go do something, and there seemed to be a lot of energy wanting to rush in and help before really stopping to assess and be with what had happened and it became clear to me as I'm watching people scramble and squabble that none of these reactions are coming from an embodied place. And I want to be very clear and say that this is not me criticizing all the other therapists on Facebook. That's not what this is at all, because, of course, I was having my own disembodied reactions to everything. Just I was living in fear for the first couple days and sort of paralyzed by everything. But I was thinking about how important it is for us to be embodied in our reactions, whether it's a tragedy or whether it's something that's not so devastating and so tragic. But when we skip the part of checking in with our body, we're often reacting from a place that is not necessarily geared towards helping, helping others, really. It's often geared towards I guess, soothing our own pain and our own discomfort without even checking in to see really what that is. And so I guess I just offer this for the next time that we have a tragedy, which will probably be unfortunately any day now, given the way that this country has gone lately, an invitation to sit with our pain, to sit with our grief, our fear, and our outrage, and to let ourselves experience what that's like instead of just trying to spring into action. You know, problem solving is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not the first thing to go to because if we just jump over the emotion part, 
we, you know, we miss a lot of really important information. So I know that experiencing our embodied emotions is really, really challenging for some people. In fact, this is what I work on with a lot of my clients who are even therapists. So I guess the first thing I would invite you to do next time you're experiencing really strong emotions and you have this propulsion to do something is just to stop and to slow down and to notice what am I experiencing right now, whether it be emotional or physical. You know, I I think oftentimes when a tragedy happens, I'm feeling either a, a flutter in my heart or a pit in my stomach. I might be crying. Who knows? All sorts of things might be happening. And when I slow down, I mean, particularly with this Highland Park tragedy, when I slowed down, I just felt tremendous grief, tremendous grief for, of course, all of the families who are suffering, but also tremendous grief for everyone in this country who continues to be assaulted, really, by these tragedies. You know, it's not just the people who've been shot, but of course, it's the rest of us who are witnessing this violence, right? This violence impacts all of us, all of us. No matter how close you are to the tragedy, this violence has impacted you. This is why I believe that everyone in this country is suffering from trauma right now. COVID, of course, is trauma. These tragedies, these senseless shootings are trauma. Countless other things are trauma right now. So the invitation right now in this moment, because your heart rate might already be raised by what I'm saying here. So just tune in, take a moment and notice what's in your body. Honestly, I can notice myself trembling even talking about this because, of course, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. If you were a person who reacted and posted on Facebook immediately and went to go rush to do something, that's not what I'm saying here. This is not criticism. This is an invitation to think of how we might do things differently that might really support our own healing more. And we cannot help other people until we heal ourselves. And healing is is never the end, right? There is no destination for healing, but it's an invitation to continuously check on what you need for yourself before extending it to others. So, oh, my deepest love and wishes go out to the families that have suffered for this tragedy. And I pray, I pray, I pray that this country will do something to stop the violence. How do I segue out of that? I don't know. I guess I have to make a joke or something because I know that's really serious. And and today's guest, truly, we had a lot of fun recording this episode. So today's guest is Charles Small, and he was featured in my episode, The Facebook Fuck Up, which was many moons ago. And Charles was not on the episode. It was a solo episode that I did. And it was in response to a a call out that Charles made to me and really helped me reflect on the way that I was showing up in the world. And Charles, (laughs) Charles has always given me shit about how much I hate on evidence-based therapy because he is a firm, firm believer in evidence-based therapy. So I said, you know what, Charles, I think now is the time for you to come on the show and we can have a good old fashioned debate and, you know, chat about all of the things that we love and hate about evidence based practices. So that's what you're going to get to enjoy today. So I hope it brings a little bit of light to all that's happening in the world right now. 
So Charles is a social worker at Cognitive Behavioral Associates of Chicago. Prior to joining group practice, Charles worked with veterans at the Jesse Brown VA Medical Center and the Road Home Program at Rush. Charles is also a lecturer at the Crown School of Social Work at the University of Chicago, where he offers courses on social work with veterans and evidence-based therapies for treating PTSD. So please enjoy my conversation with my dear friend, Charles Small. Charles! Hello. (laughs) Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. It's about time we did this, eh? Yeah, thanks for having me. You're welcome. We're here to fight about CBT, everyone. Let's get it on. (laughs) And I would only fight about it with someone who I know and I trust and I have full faith in and believe is a really good therapist. So how did we meet? Because we went to school together, but never had a class together because I think you were like one semester behind me. Was that right? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we might have graduated at the, in the same year. I started a little bit later because I, I started as a, a dual degree mm. and then dropped that after the first semester. And I was like, ah, look, we're just doing social work now. What was your, were you doing the JD too? No, the, the MDiv. Oh, were you? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that shit too. We'll get into it. Okay. Right. Okay. So we... Well, we met when somebody put together like a study course for the LSW, wasn't it? That's right. It was right after uh, graduation. And um, yeah. I think someone posted online or, or something like that. And yeah, I think we met at um, some bar or some Matilda's. Club. Matilda's. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that's where we met. And we figured uh, that we learned that we were both uh, musicians. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Do you still play? Charles is a drummer, everyone. I really don't. Yeah, it's hard to say that because I haven't drummed in a long time. The, the last thing I did was a recording session with a friend, and I'll plug his stuff because he yeah. loaned me uh, this mic this mic and headphones too. So thanks, Matt Bozaday. Thanks, Matt. What's his band name? It's Bozaday. It's just him. Matt Bozaday. <laughs> so, Got yeah. it. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. So look, Spotify, Bozaday, B-O-Z-E-D-A-Y. Check him out. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, so we met, found out we were musician friends, and then I've just always, I don't know, I just have admired you from afar. We run into each other from time to time, except since COVID. Mm-hmm. But uh, right. So you want to tell people like what your jam is, what you're doing right now? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so right now I'm working in a small group practice, not too far from head and heart. Yeah. Called Cognitive Behavioral Associates of Chicago. We've been doing that via telehealth like everyone else for, for quite some time now. But yeah, I'm seeing clients uh, in a small group practice there. Focusing primarily on acceptance and commitment therapy as sort of the primary intervention, a lot of mindfulness-based uh, cognitive therapies. So yeah, that's kind of been my jam. Prior to that, I was working at Rush and then at the VA, I worked primarily with veterans. So that was the first decade of my career was really working with that population. Um, so now I'm working with the civilians. Yup. <laughs> that's quite a shift, but yep. still rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and I'm also teaching too at, at um, Crown Crown School for, they changed the name from SSA, the University of oh, Chicago. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So the Crown Family School right. for social work. Oh, is that what it's called? Yeah, I think the Crowns uh, gave uh, a lot of money and the name changed. And so mm-hmm. I, have to, I, have to, I have to remember it. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But everyone will call it SSA, just like we keep calling it the Sears Tower. We don't, exactly. we don't care whose money it is. <laughs> yep. I, I was hired by SSA, so it's SSA. Right. Exactly. Wow. 
So let's talk more about you before we fight about CBT, because I I just want to I want to know about the MDiv thing. I want to know, like, so what's your therapist origin story? That's always a good place to start. Yeah, really. You know, it, I think it all stems back to my own work in therapy, you know, as as uh, a 20 something kid who was kind of confused and thought he wanted to be a rock star and, you know, was dealing with everything except the rock and roll parts so of the sex and the drugs you know, was a big part of my, uh, my, my introduction into the lifestyle. And so I was kind of directionless, um, uh, in that regard. And yeah, I worked with a therapist who was a Jungian analyst, um, but also oh. a social worker and worked with her for many years. And, um, as I got sober and as I really started thinking about, you know, what I wanted to do with my life, um, you know, whether I wanted to pursue music, uh, continue pursuing music or whether I wanted to, dedicate my life and career to something else. Um, I, I went back to school. I got my undergrad in religious studies. And a lot of that was motivated by what was going on in the world at the time. You know, 9-11 had happened. Um, you know, I had friends going off to war. So it was kind of a crazy time to be uh, coming into young adulthood. And, um, you know, there's a lot of existential questions that I was really, I was really interested in. And I thought that religious studies would help me kind of give a lens to look at that. And when I graduated, you know, it's sort of like, well, what do I do with this? What do I do with the religious studies degree? Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of the past were like, well, you know, just keep going with that, embed yourself in academia. And then, you know, the closest thing I ever had to a calling was, you know, just really laying in bed right at the end of my senior year and racking my brain about like, well, what do we do here? You know, where are we going? How are we going to explain this to folks? And just the idea of service um, came to mind. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know exactly what service looked like. I just kind of was reflecting on, you know, how a lot of my problems, as I saw it at the time, were related to really being focused on me, right? As a musician, it was about what I got out of playing music, the adulation, yep. you know, being told that I was really talented. And yep. that was something where the idea that I, I could actually devote my life to doing something for other people as opposed to myself was completely novel at the time. You know, I think that comes with, you know, privilege and being conditioned to see yourself in a certain light. And when I kind of had that, you know, sort of literally in, in bed one night, just the idea of service coming up, it, it kind of led me on this, down this rabbit hole of exploring what does that mean? Which eventually led me to, you know, talking with my therapist and asking her about her education. Mm -hmm how she found her way into social work and working in Jungian analysis and ultimately led to me applying to Loyola for the, the dual degree program. And then <laughs> learning pretty quickly that, you know, I, I wasn't cut out for the cloth. And so, <laughs> you know, social work was really where it was at for me from that point on. That's cool. I totally relate to the music piece because I've always felt like performing is for me. Mm -hmm. Like, good on y'all if you enjoy it, yeah. but it's really for me. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I felt the same, like wanting to do something. You're such, as you were talking, I'm like, Charles really is such a good person. Like, to your core, you really are. I don't know if you feel that way about yourself or if you get that feedback very often, but there's just something about you that's just plain good. That's really nice to hear because, you know, again, I, I don't feel that way about myself. And I think there's right. a lot of folks that can relate to that. Yeah, I think, if, you know, if I'm being objective, it probably does come from a place where I do have good values and ethics. You know, those things are very important to me. But underneath the surface, there's this roiling pit of self-loathing, doubt, and all the things that actually I think make 
for really good therapists. You know, I think that yeah. doubt and that humility and that uncertainty really kind of keeps us from getting big heads, but it can also have a dark side too. You know, I think a lot of my addictive behaviors, you know, as I look at it on this day, being, you know, several years sober comes back to really understanding the function of why I engaged in certain behaviors, what I was looking for mm -hmm. or what I was trying to not feel, you know, in those right. times. So I think people that have a history of addiction uh, or addictive behaviors can understand that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, how do I say things that are beyond words? I've always felt like there's been this like darkness inside of me mm. and that darkness is absolutely what led me to be a therapist because like you said yeah if, if I didn't have that how would I relate like and my deep desire to understand that mm -hmm. and heal that is what drives everything yeah and we find different ways of doing that. I mean, for a while, music was that for me, right? It was a way to express, yes. you know, the, yes. the darkness, the, the music I liked and still to this day like is generally pretty dark. You know, it's, it's raw. Uh, it has teeth. I can't stand music that just doesn't have teeth. I, I recoil. You're not into Harry Styles these days? Believe it or not, no. <laughs> I know that's surprising. <laughs> given that I'm wearing a, no, a Jonas Brothers shirt no right now. No watermelon sugar? No, none of that. Wait. That's a Jonas Brothers Black Lives Matter t-shirt? No, I know that they're not going to be oh, okay. showing this, so <laughs> I can tell them anything. I was like, if they are fucking selling Black Lives Matter t-shirts, let's just end it all. Although this is based on a, a Black Sabbath album cover for Master uh, of Reality. Uh, yeah, so I just, as a Black Sabbath fan and Black Lives Matter fan, like, <laughs> it's, the, it's an ultimate mashup. Mm-hmm. Yes, what you're describing, I don't know that I've ever talked to another musician therapist have I on here? I don't think that I have. And darker music with teeth, that's such a good way to put it. Cause like a man like Fiona Apple ripping my heart out. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, yeah. when I was graduating from undergrad, I'm trying to think who else, but yeah, shit that would like, you're like, oh, you know, that person is fucked up. They could not write that song if they were not fucked up. Like that's what I wanted to. Yeah. They're working through something. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, and to this day, music still is very important to me, but I think the role it plays in my life is a lot different. And I actually enjoy it a lot more now. I mean, I don't know if you've had this experience, but you know, when you're a gigging musician, sometimes the last thing you want to do is play Mustang Sally for the thousandth time in front of a, a bunch of drunk wedding guests. Yes. That literally is the last thing I want to do. Yeah. So, and, and not to knock it, I mean, there's people that make their careers off of it and successful musicians that still have to do that. So I have nothing but the utmost respect for that. All my friends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so, yeah, I don't look down on them. It's a, a career. I couldn't hang, like I, I couldn't do it. Yeah. So, you know, and that was me being honest with myself. One of the greatest compliments I ever got was, and I didn't know it was a compliment at the time, but you know, I was out walking my dog a while ago and there was a musician I used to play with, uh, um, great guitar player and you know he asked me if i was still playing and i said no i'm not really playing and he looked at me and he said and what a waste mm. i know and at the time i was like fuck you dude yeah. like i'm living a great life i'm, I'm a therapist right but it also reminded me that you know there was people who enjoyed playing with me and again that's that self-loathing showing up that i couldn't see myself as someone that people valued as a musician mm -hmm. and so after some reflection i was like oh man that was actually a really supportive nice thing <laughs> to say but you know, like me, I, I sometimes can't hear that. Yeah. Well, 
If you ever want to dust off the skins, I got a wedding band that I'm certain could use some more drummers. You never know. If this whole therapy thing doesn't work out after this podcast, they might be like, he's done. (laughs) (laughs) He's done. Well, we we should really honestly, and I say this a million times on the show, like we should make like a therapist band. That'd be some fucked up music coming out of there. I know. We gotta we gotta find a good bass player. Yeah. And then somebody who can shred on the guitar. There's gotta be if you're listening out there and you're a therapist and you play music, you've got to get in touch with us because we're going to start a band. Exactly. Man, I can't even imagine the genre. It'd be pretty eclectic. Well, I, this isn't a total aside, but a friend and I wrote music literally 12 years ago and we're about to finally release it as an album. Mm-hmm. Guess what the band is called? And it's all mine. All my name. Go for it. Axis 2. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and no one's going to no get it. No one's going to get it. I know. Oh, man. I love it. Honestly, a lot of the songs I wrote based on like DSM criteria for Mm -hmm. things. Like there's one song that is 100% borderline personality disorder. All of the criteria are in there. And that's so I was like, this is what we got to name the band. (laughs) The track listings should also be just sort of the code, (gasps) like the the numerical code. Oh, my God. They really should be. Yeah. It had to be a concept album. Have, Have your fans go deep. Oh my God. My friend would think that is so stupid, but I love it. He's not a, he's not a therapist, so he doesn't care. <laughs> he doesn't get it. He doesn't. Ben, you don't get it. Come anyway. on, Ben. <laughs> okay. Delightful. So let's fight about CBT. I'm ready. So, well, let's, let's also set the stage that there have been several times in my career where Charles has been following me and then he'll be like, you know, Sarah, I don't think what you're saying is right. Very kindly, very kindly, always a call in, very, you know, sweet. And there was, I I can't remember what episode it was, but, uh, but I did give you a shout out for one of those times where you were like, I remember that. That was very kind. I don't know, Sarah. I don't know. And so you, every time I rip on CBT, you're like, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And then recently I did post on Instagram and TikTok and whatever a little video about evidence-based therapies because I Mm -hmm. literally thought I was going to take a big, big old shit all over them and be like, ha ha, see? And when I did the research- I I, I thought you were too. (laughs) I know. I'd like to keep it, you know, keep changing it up. None of it was nice. But I did the research and I was wrong. And I was wrong. I still hate CBT personally for me because it does not work for me. And I am interested actually to talk about why with you and see if we Mm -hmm. can kind of figure it out together. But- Why don't you tell the listeners, because not everybody who listens is a therapist. So can you encapsulate what like CBT, DBT act, all of these things are? I'll try it. And again, I have to kind of give a disclaimer that, you know, just because I called you in and sort of I even because I work at a place literally called Cognitive Behavioral Associates of Chicago, I don't consider myself an expert. And that's not like false modesty. I think that's literally just there's so much that falls under that umbrella. And there's so many people out there that know so much more about this than I do. I hesitate to speak authoritatively. So I really, I want to kind of be clear that I speak from my experience, both in the trainings that I received and the experience I have with clients. So yeah, I'm not someone that, you know, spouts stats and research. Again, we didn't go to social work school to become, you know, great clinical researchers and, you know, assessing data. Although that is part of, you know, what I've learned to appreciate since grad school and and try to, to hone those skills. That being said, so cognitive behavioral therapy, as I understand it, is a school of or a framework that we can look at how humans 
develop psychopathology. So emotional disturbances, you know, that basically all the things that we sort of learn about in the DSM, which itself is, you know, something else that is kind of a nightmare mm-hmm. <laughs> in and of itself. Simply put, cognitive behavioral approaches to therapy really involve how we as human beings think and act in an array of situations and contexts. So classical cognitive behavioral therapy really was very much focused on identifying thoughts that don't help us. And even the language that they use is very old school. It's very non-person centered. So Beck and the other folks that developed post-Skinnerian and if you know about Skinner is. Oh, Skinner. Okay. I was like, Skinnerian? Who's that? Okay. Yes. Yeah, Skinner. That, that's, yeah, that just rolls off the tongue. Uh, yeah. Skinner, post-Skinnerian. <laughs> that's another music genre. Yes. So um, he identified things like maladaptive thoughts or cognitive distortions, right? So these are the, the ways that we talk to ourselves that limit our behaviors or lead us to not be able to think through problems. And so, you know, one of the things that the research in cognitive therapy found was that if we actually encourage and help clients to identify that there are certain thoughts that are unhelpful, that keep people stuck in patterns of behavior that aren't helpful to them, that if we actually adjust those and have people investigate those thoughts and actually be willing to challenge and work with those thoughts, that the feelings that are evoked from those more, he would call adaptive or more balanced thoughts actually shape people's emotions and therefore their behaviors. And so I tend to say cognitive and behavioral therapy because I don't think there's always this mashup, right? I think people think and people act and sometimes they do those in in sync. And so I tend to say cognitive and behavioral therapies because you have to deal with both. And I think one of the shortcomings that people who aren't super familiar with CBT find is that it's all happening up in the head, right? You just spend Mm -hmm. a lot of time wandering around and navel gazing and it doesn't really apply to what, how you engage in life. And that's particularly true for things like the stuff that we as social workers care about, you know, social justice, uh, systemic oppression. We can't figure that out in our heads, right? We actually have to get engaged. Right. We actually have to deal with that. We have to help people navigate systems of oppression. And so that's where we get into the behavioral aspect of CBT. So all these things have to work together. So fast forward. The way that I see CBT is a huge umbrella under which a lot of these different modalities that you hear about, a lot of these fall under that acceptance commitment therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I mean, there's a, there's literally a meme out there. You can Google it and it's, it's got a big <laughs> umbrella that says CBT and underneath it, it's just like dozens of these different huh. approaches. So again, CBT from my understanding is really just a theoretical orientation or approach, just like psychodynamic theory would be a theoretical lens in which there's lots of thoughts and and ideas about human development and how pathology comes about. So the way that I use it in my work is I'm just really interested in asking people about their experiences and what they think about them and how they feel about them. And when they're engaging in certain thought patterns or they have certain impressions of their lives and their relationships and their world, How does that influence how they cope and how they interact with people and how they interact with the world around them? Because most times people come to therapy having a pretty good idea of what's going wrong for them, what they're unhappy with. Right. You know, it it might not be specific, but they might have that general idea that something's off. Something's, you know, I'm not feeling like I'm really connecting with my life in the way that I feel like I could. And for me, cognitive behavioral therapy, from my perspective as a therapist, what I tend to do is I just tend to ask them ton of fucking questions. I'm annoyingly like inquisitive about, okay, what, tell me about that. How did that make you feel? 
what was the thought that kind of led you to feel that way? You know, what were you saying to yourself? That's more kind of straight CBT. The reason I like acceptance commitment therapy so much is that it sort of builds upon the literature of CBT and incorporates sort of processes of change. And I don't know how deep down the rabbit hole you want to get with this. I'm sure you, there's, there's a lot of back therapists out there that can talk about this. There's a really great book that I give to almost all my clients, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris. I don't know if you're familiar with mm, that. I've heard of it. Yeah, a very easy read. That's what I often quote from because Russ Harris speaks in sort of more lay terms. Mm -hmm. Because if you really delve into the theoretical orientation of ACT with like relational frame theory and functional analytic psychotherapy, it's a fucking maze. It's so hard to understand. And so to have someone break it down so like an idiot like me can understand. Stop. I'm not going to let you. <laughs> You're not going to let me get away with that? We're thought stopping right now. Okay? I like that. See? Yeah. See, yeah. I do remember you some do of know. these yeah. terms. Yeah. Um, so we can work with that. As you've been talking, literally, I'm like, damn, Charles is really smart. This is why I always respected you. Yeah, sometimes. And again, I'll, I'll be very uh, uh, open with uh, listeners and you here that even as I'm talking about this, I have parallel dialogues going on with me, which is sort of like, you sound like an idiot. You know, you don't know what you're talking about. You're all over the place. So this is what I would talk with a client about in therapy. So I would stop them yeah. if an opportunity arose where I was cussing myself out. And I would say, let's kind of hang out here for a bit. Mm -hmm. What's going on here? What's coming up for you? And yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in sort of the content of, of the thoughts, but then we do go deeper with that sort of like, where did you learn this? You know, who taught you that this is kind of how you talk to yourself? And so again, I think often the misconception about CBT is that it's this very surface level. We're not going to get too deep into feelings here. We're not going to sort of explore your history which isn't the case. You know, I'm actually very interested in people's history. I'm very interested in what they learned, the lessons that they learned about how to be a human being and how to navigate the world around them. And I find that CBT, because it's relatively simple, it's elegantly simple in its structure, and it provides this sense of, uh, it's like a skeleton. It's a frame that is relatively stable that clients can understand. And one of the things, and I don't know if you've had this experience at Loyola, but what I remember from a lot of the, the Hubsy courses we took and a lot of when we were taking a deep dive into, you know, psychodynamic theory, you know, when we would talk about phases of treatment, I just remember feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't remember all this stuff. How am I <laughs> going to communicate this to clients? You know, how do I just kind of like act like I know what I'm talking, you know? And so the first couple <laughs> of years of therapy, it's sort of like, I'm totally pulling this out of my ass. I don't know what I'm doing, you know, and this person's coming in and trusting me, you know, life hack like we still don't know what we're doing <laughs> 11 years Truth. later we're still doing a lot Truth. of it by the, the seat of our pants or at least we feel that way but you know with cbt and cognitive behavioral interventions there's a, a sense of simplicity that i like about that and and you know if we're going to kind of go back to music here i love using music as an analogy um act uh, acceptance mm. and commitment therapy loves metaphors and analogies and i love that i mean it's that's that's where you we can be really creative as clinicians is connecting metaphors to these sort of more um cerebral concepts and so the way i think about it the way i think about cbt and some of these even manualized therapies that you and i have kind of uh, bumped heads on like uh, cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy for uh, ptsd the way that I see it, and, and I actually teach this to, to kids and some of them get it, some of them don't, but I see it almost like jazz music. So in, in bebop, you know, in the fifties and sixties, um, 
basically how people communicated musically was that you had sort of a song, right? You know, it could be one day my prince will come, you know, and, and one day my prince will come. So we know that song, you know, it's a Disney. We, 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 we kind of know the structure of that song. And so jazz musicians will get together and, you know, they will have this melody and they'll have chord changes. Right. And we all know it and we can, we can communicate. But if all we were doing was just kind of playing that song, first of all, it'd be a really short song. Uh, people would get bored like that. I know this song, but what happens is that they'll play the song and everyone in the audience will be like, Oh yeah, one day my prince will come. That's great. But then, you know, go through a couple of courses and then suddenly the trumpet player starts improvising over the structure of the song. And they're like, Oh my gosh, this person's like, on the fly, it's almost like uh, this this musical freestyling of having a structure that's that's holding this person underneath them, but over that, this person is is doing these wildly creative, beautiful, like boundary pushing uh, things. And so that's how I see therapy using a, a modality like CBT. You have to know what the rules are, but you can be very creative um, while using them. And, and often it shouldn't feel like you're just reading off a script. And I think to me, that's what shitty therapy is and shitty CBT is. If someone's literally opening up the manual and reading, okay, here's module one. This is the impact statement. I want you to no fuck that. You know, you have to connect with the person as a human being, but underneath this, you know, that there's this well-researched system supporting uh, the interventions that you're doing. You're not flying by the seat of your pants. So you can take risks. You can push the session a little bit. You can meet the client where they're at. You can push them forward in ways that they feel like they couldn't because you have this confidence that I, I kind of know what's coming. I know what's behind them. And it's, I find it really fun. It never gets boring to me, believe it or not. I mean, yeah, sometimes therapy is boring, but and CBT is not sort of this uh, monolith. It doesn't stand alone. It doesn't, you know, the, the, the science is always changing. We're learning more and more. ACT itself is sort of a, a, an iteration of what we learn from CBT and what the limitations of that are. So even things like, you know, changing thoughts, right? We know from the behavioral research that, okay, we can't suppress thoughts. We can't sort of get in and change thoughts and have it be permanent. So, you know, ACT right. acknowledges that and says, okay, yeah, we can, what we can do instead, if like unhelpful thoughts show up, we can choose to kind of bring ourselves back to a place of, of present-centered awareness, right? We can diffuse from thoughts that are really unhelpful to us, you know, and it doesn't mean that we have to get rid of those thoughts, right? And, and sort of old-school CBT would say, like, yes, you have to kind of challenge those thoughts and change your thoughts and don't have those thoughts anymore. And, yeah, you, you can't do that. Just so very 80s anyway. It, earlier than that, <laughs> but, yeah, probably, yeah, right. the resurgence in the 80s and then, you know, add some add some ADHD medication on top of that. And you've got a recipe for a whole generation of us weird therapists. Yeah. So it's funny as you're talking, like I'm tracking my internal process and something I was thinking about before, you know, we, we jumped on the call is why doesn't CBT work mm -hmm. for me as mm -hmm. a person? And the thing that has been so helpful for me after learning NARM was this recognition of the autonomy survival style that shows up for me, which is basically, if you tell me to do anything, I am going to say, mm -hmm. fuck you and get into mm -hmm. a power struggle. And it's funny, just like, as you're saying these things, I'm feeling it inside of me. And I don't know if it's just like, 
I just don't want to accept what you say because I just want to hate CBT sure. and fuck you. Yep. <laughs> or if it's something else, it's just, I, I'm just noticing it. It's so interesting because as you talk about it, yes, this sounds lovely. And if I knew nothing mm -hmm. about it, if you were like, oh, yes, this is this new mm -hmm. therapy and you like totally fooled me, I, I fall for placebo like mm -hmm. that all the time. So I'm just I'm just noticing that for myself. But I think why it never worked for me is this. I mean, definitely the the change yep. your thoughts. Oh, you know, now what it is, too. I'm thinking about that was my mom's M.O. is she would say, I'm just not going to be sad today. I'm going to. And when I mm -hmm. go to work, I don't let anybody else know that I'm sad because it's I can't ruin yeah. their day. Right. And so any suppression of mm -hmm. emotion is just like, absolutely not. I'm not fucking yeah. doing this. I'm going to feel my fucking feelings. And so that's probably the root of my aversion. And yeah. I hear you saying that's not what it is anymore. But of course, when I first started going to therapy, that is what it was. Yeah. And, and to validate that from an act perspective, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. You know, if you, you know, if you experience the pain of being told that your feelings don't matter and that, you know, the best thing to do, and you're hearing this from, you know, a life giver, right. You're going to, right. you know, you're going to have to come to this sort of decision of like, is this something that I, I want to use as a model for how I live my life? Or am I going to really be authentic to who I am and, and eat and just even rebel against that? And yeah, absolutely. I was the same right. way, right? My, and my mom told me the same thing too. Not, not because mm -hmm. she wanted to control me or that she was a bad person. That's what she learned, right? right. That, you know, you have to, right. you know, propriety is, is, is paramount. You know, you have to show up a certain way in the world. And I think the way that, that I would sort of understand how to come to, to terms of that from an act perspective is again, seeing again seeing the function of certain behaviors in certain contexts, right? And, and what I mean by that is I'm not aligning myself with your mom here, but what she's saying isn't entirely wrong. It's just <laughs> that she's got it pointed at the, she's got the gun pointed in the wrong direction. So what I would say is that in one sense, she's right. Yes. You, you know, you should be able to control how you show up when you're having feelings. Right. And so what I mean by that is in certain contexts, if we just feel what we're feeling and then we act those feelings, right? That's why um, even language is so important in act. Like how we talk about internal experiences is, is connected to our behavior, right? We speak in symbolic ways that actually shape our behavior. So even when we say something like, I'm an anxious person, that carries weight. We're not just talking about, oh, this is the feeling I'm having right now. We've assigned ourselves an identity that it's very hard to kind of uh, be flexible within. So, uh, again, how I would understand that is that, you know, your mom was trying to control the feelings themselves, right? Like I can't, I'm going to be a happy yeah. person. I'm going to go out and, yep. and, and I'm sort of committing to myself that I'm going to have this feeling. Uh, I'm going to just be that way. Whereas act would say, fuck that. You can't control that. You have no say over that. You know, feelings are going to come up. You know, if I came across, you know, this, the chair and kicked my, kicked my client in the shin, they'd have a feeling about it. Actually, I hate to say it, I did that once in session. I threw a pen at one of my clients who just was convinced. He's like, I can control my feelings. There's nothing you can do about it. And so I I, I tossed a I tossed a pen and it bounced off his shoulder. He's like, What the fuck are you doing, man? And I said <laughs> so I said, <laughs> Yeah, it's like, okay, so how in control were you of that feeling? And he's like, Okay, right, yeah, right. Oh, nice one. <laughs> well <Asshole>. done, Charles. <laughs> 
but <laughs> but again, it's not it's not me be trying to, to to get one over on them. It's just that I think we as as human beings, particularly in this uh, context, you know, the Western world, you know, where control is especially control over emotions is communicated as something that's possible to us. You know, we put ourselves under a lot of pressure by by trying to conform to this idea that you know, oh, you should be happy. Why aren't you happy? Why aren't you doing more of this? What you know, I'll give you something to cry about. All that stuff, which is around emotional control, and where our actual locus of control is, for the most part, is in our behaviors. What do I do when I'm feeling sad? What do I do when I'm feeling angry? And it's not that there's this moral right or wrong. It's it's what do my values, if, I, if I'm going to choose the sort of person I want to be in the world, what do my behaviors have to look like? And that's incredibly empowering. I have found we're in working with clients who, when they're able to identify, this is what I want to stand for in the world. This is the sort of person I want to be. It's not contingent upon whether they feel like that at any given point in time. A lot of times I don't feel like getting up and being a, <laughs> like a motivated, positive person. But if it's what I want to be, then I have to choose to do certain things and not do other things. Hello, everyone. I'm interrupting this amazing conversation with an invitation and request. I can't believe it, but Conversations with a Wounded Healer is nearing our 200th episode. And if you've been with me for a while, you know this podcast has been an instrumental part of my own healing journey. And I'd really love to hear more about how it's been a part of yours. So for our 200th episode, I'd love to include your voice. Just go to speak-to.us slash convos with a wounded healer, and you can leave me up to a 60-second voicemail about how this podcast has impacted you. And for our 200th episode coming up in November, I'll include your message. If you don't want to share your voice in particular, but want to drop us a message anyway, you can email assistant at headhearttherapy.com, and I'll read your message as part of this special celebration. I can't wait to hear from you. Okay, so let me throw sure. in there too. And I'm just using myself as an example because it's the easiest way. So I'm thinking of who I was in my 20s before I had unconditional love, before mm -hmm. I met my husband. And my, so this is really fucking shameful. I'm telling you guys one of the most shameful things that I carry around with me. I got fired from my first job in Chicago. It was like a temp job and it was like attempt to hire. So assuming that you would get hired and I got fired because I had a series of events happen to me right mm -hmm. in a row that like I was already unstable. I moved to Chicago with a hundred dollars in my pocket. That's literally <laughs> all I had. I didn't have a job. I had nothing. And so I was like, like once I got this job, I'm like, okay, and then I'll be able to make money and I like actually pay my rent. Series of things happened. I lost my shit and I like had a mm -hmm. mental breakdown yeah. <laughs> at the age of 22. You know, I'm the secretary, whatever. And I ended up getting let go. I, and I'm not going to say that I didn't have mm -hmm. a choice, but I did not have the capacity yeah. to do any better. Yeah. And that's the piece where, and I, I don't disagree mm -hmm. with you because I think once we have a solid foundation and we've got tools and that we do have choices, but it, in that moment, I really couldn't yeah, have done you didn't, any better. You didn't have the language and for it. You didn't have sort of the, the tools, yeah, the support. And, and not many of us do. Of I mean, that's that sounds like a horrible thing to go through just on so many different levels. And and yeah, that's that's what I also try to communicate to clients as well, is that 
once people start learning these skills, then sometimes regret and shame comes up, right? Sort of like, well, I, I wish I could right. have done that. Sort of, why didn't I do this? And then my role mm-hmm. shifts to be like, okay, like, is that a reasonable thing to expect of yourself? You know, do we have to judge, you know, again, it's that a Monday morning quarterbacking thing. It's the hindsight bias where we go back mm-hmm. in and, and if we're not careful, we can really beat ourselves up for something that wasn't really our fault at the time because you don't know what you don't know. And, mm-hmm. and again, that's, I spend a lot of time, you know, on Sunday nights, you know, thinking back on stupid shit that I've done or, or, or times that I just didn't show up the way that I, I want to, or I wanted to. And again, it took a long time to not, not blame myself. But again, when I was younger, I would blame other people, right? It would get externalized, you know, well, you know, my parents should have prepared me for this or, you know, why doesn't society mm-hmm. kind of make things this way? And again, I'm not one of those knuckleheads that sort of like, you know, Jordan Peterson, your personal responsibility horse shit. But in some respect, I, I found the idea of being able to find my own locus of control very empowering. Um, he wasn't a cognitive behavioral therapist uh, or even an act therapist, but, you know, Victor Frankl talks about this in Man's Search for Meaning, right? Mm-hmm. This idea of, you know, what can I hold mm-hmm. on to that is not contingent upon external forces what is the meaning that i can make with my life even under the worst of circumstances and so i found that to be incredibly empowering and motivating to hear that there is no point at which you don't have a core self in which you can take action from everything can be stripped from you your life can be taken from you but if you're able to hold on to that which you value and you can show up in the world the way that aligns and is consistent with your personal values then Who's to say you haven't lived a good life? And that's beyond diagnosis, right? That's just, what is it to be human? It's to live a life that's good, however you define that. However you define it. And so I'm trying to make this make sense in the way that I practice therapy and what's been most helpful for me as a client too. And So what I'm hearing you say and what I think we're all taught as therapists is like we reflect the good thing to the client, right? You say that you're a piece of shit and I can say, well, I care about you. And is that true? And right, like all these things. And what NARM does that I think for somebody like me was so helpful was NARM creates the environment where I have to do that for myself. Mm. Not have to, but because what I'm hearing you say and tell me if I'm wrong, what a therapist thing to say <laughs> is that you're able to internalize what somebody else is saying, right? Like if, mm-hmm. like when I say you're smart, there's a part of you that's really able to take that in and integrate that for yourself. Mm-hmm. I was never able to do that. Sure. And that's honestly why I, I veered away from Brene Brown because yeah. her thing was like, empathy is the antidote to shame. And I'm like, nah, man, it's self-compassion because there's yeah. nothing that anyone can say to me that's going to make me feel better about myself. I have to do that work. Yep. And so that's what I needed. And when you talk about agency, this look, or I said agency because that's mm-hmm. the norm word, right? But this locus mm-hmm. of control. Which is also not act. That's my work. <laughs> that's, okay. I don't know where that comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and what we talk about in norm too, is that some people have an easier time with that. And there are some of us folks who struggle with this autonomy survival style that are threatened by their own agency yeah for sure so it's like now i'm like i'm such a complex client that's why i need something that's so complex to help me like i'm (laughs) so special but that is what i needed yeah 
Yeah, I mean, I, I want to go back to something you said earlier because, uh, and this is this might be where we could also bump heads here too. Is that you said that you know, as therapists, when someone comes to us and says, "I'm a piece of shit," you know, our our job is to tell them that, well, I think you're this way. And from a CBT perspective, or from an ACT perspective, and I will tell you, I, I will give you some anecdotal examples of how extreme this can get. But I don't see my job as being sort of the counterpoint to say, no, you're not. Because again, that puts us into opposition with the yes. client. Right. So if someone comes to me and says, I'm a piece of shit, I just want to ask them questions about that. Like, okay, tell me about what a piece of shit you are. Uh, tell me more about that. And so I may be communicating just empathy by saying, I understand and I want to know more and I care that you feel like a piece of shit. But the intervention, as I see it, isn't about challenging that. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where it dovetails with what you're saying is that we want the client to be able to challenge that themselves. Right. So this became much more clear to me. And I think really the thing that sold me on the cognitive and behavioral and contextual behavioral sciences was when I was working with veterans who had experienced uh, either combat PTSD or military sexual trauma and were really struggling. Uh, I was working at Rush mm. at the Road Home program. And the primary modalities that we used were cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure therapy. And I'd heard about both of these when I was at the VA and I was really eager to learn them. But because the VA is the VA, there was no chance that a social worker with just a couple of years under his belt was going to get access to that sort of training. But when I came to Rush, they're like, yeah, sign up. You're getting trained tomorrow and you're going to get world-class supervision. So it was a, it was a dream come true in a lot of ways. Mm. But again, I was coming from still just my psychodynamic grad school training and sort of whatever I had learned on the job at thresholds. And, you know, I was pretty great in a lot of ways still. And so mm-hmm. one of the things that really kind of changed things for me was when we would work with veterans who had these really, really extreme self-beliefs, you know, things that they would say about themselves. And, and, it, and it's sort of on the outer edge of human experience, right? I killed a child, therefore I'm a monster. Right. Right. How do you start with something like that? Right. Because to a certain extent, like there's, how am I going to argue with that? You killed a child. Yeah. That's, that's horrible. Mm-hmm. And so the task wasn't for us to say, no, you're a great person. That wasn't your fault. You know, again, we know from motivational interviewing that anytime someone's maybe feeling ambivalent about a, a kind of changing perspectives mm-hmm. or changing behavior, if we really kind of push too far towards any direction, we're going to get sort of that digging in the heels response. And so through this process in CPT uh, of Socratic dialogue, we just want to understand how a person might believe that about themselves, but also hold the possibility that there might be more to that story than this very simple black and white, I am this, you know, this happened, therefore I am a monster. Identification, disidentification. Yeah, sure. I'm naming the things that Norm, yes. These parallel processes, mm -hmm. right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and and again, I always share with my clients because often what happens when you do this trauma focus, we call these cognitions that are are sort of leading to pathology. Like imagine what a thought, like I am a murderer, I'm a piece of shit. Imagine the feelings that get evoked with that, right? Shame, guilt, anger, hatred towards oneself. So imagine what happens when you start filling out the picture a little bit more and getting an understanding of why someone might have felt that way, but also understanding that maybe it's not as simple as that. So for instance, and again, I hate to say this because it's it's horrible, but there are so many stuck points that I've heard time and time again that you couldn't tie it to a single veteran. It's so endemic in that experience for people that have been deployed to say something like, I'm a murderer, I'm a monster. Yeah. 
Yeah. And when we kind of understand what they mean by that, we help them identify, okay, what does it mean to be a murder? Right. And then, so we yeah. unpack what it is. Oh, a murder. Actually, this is intentional. This is something that people want to do. They enjoy, they get joy out of the carnage. Is that the case for you? And again, by asking these questions, at the end of this, people will often feel like their world's been turned upside down and some will really push back against it because they're like, there's meaning in my suffering. I get something out of being a monster, right? Because it, right. it means that uh, I'm atoning for this horrific thing that right. I did. But our job as a therapist in those contexts is to say that, is this really the best type of atonement to do? Is this sort of how you should live now that you've gone through some horrible things? Like, is this all you are? Which sounds like the way I would talk to somebody in early recovery too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But when people kind of integrate more of this information, I ask them, how did we get to this different perspective? Because maybe you started with, I'm a monster. And then maybe the thought that you're sort of willing to engage with now is, I was put in an impossible position where this firefight was happening and there was civilians mixed in with the people who were trying to kill us. And I couldn't really see what I was shooting at. And after the firefight, you know, I realized that one of my squad, not even necessarily me, but one of my squad had killed this child and I feel horrible about it. But these are things that happen in war that they can't train us for. And I was not prepared for this. And this is not how I was raised. If I had known that there was a child there, I would have done something different. And so you get this breadth of detail and context that these really very simple black and white statements like I'm a monster don't allow in. And is that enough? Like I'm thinking of myself in that scenario and I still get committed to the hateful thoughts and maybe that's the autonomy. So I don't, I don't know exactly, but does that actually work for people? Like I'm fascinated that someone could really change that thought and then be like, oh, maybe I'm not a horrible person. Well, we don't say like, okay, now, so this is, it's like a light switch. Okay. So now you think this way, it's a gradual process. Cause if you think about it, how much head start have you had with the cognitions that I'm unlovable, that I'm not a good person. Right. My whole life. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's 40, 41 years. Right. Right. So if someone's giving me the opportunity to see it in a different way, I'm not going to buy it a hundred percent the first time I hear it. But with repetition, if I'm willing to kind of put that more balanced cognition up against what I've told myself. And that's the thing too, is that we're not giving people like positive thinking strategies there. It's not like a Garfield poster. We're handed them where it's everybody. <laughs> I hate Mondays. Hang in there. Where's my you know? lasagna? Right. Because that's also unbalanced. That's <laughs> bullshit. You know, so again, what, what we, we are we trying to do. We go to, to his do, office and that's all he has up is Garfield posters, I bet you. Oh, that's all I have, right? <laughs> you know, then I pull a sneaky on him and I get him to have them feels. <laughs> oh, man. So again, you know, what we're trying to do is we're trying to move from very emotionally reasoned sort of conclusions, these broad generalizations about this was a very complex situation, but I'm just going to say it was super simple in my mind because that's what our human minds do. That's what human brains do. Yeah. We try to make sense of things and we connect dots that maybe aren't really that simple to connect. And so we give them a complexity of processing. And I say give them, right? Because it's not like I'm bestowing this upon them. That's why I ask clients at the end of this, how did we come up with this new perspective? And I really ask them and oftentimes they'll be like, well, you told me I'm like, stop right there. I didn't tell you shit. <laughs> what did I do? And they said, well, you were just asking me a lot of questions. I said, yeah. And you answered them. And then I'll ask him, were any of your answers like based on bullshit? Were you lying to me or was that your experience? And it was like, no, the, everything I told you in response to these questions, they were my experience. It's what I remember of what happened. They say often, but I just don't think of it 
in the big picture, right? In an analogy, here goes another one. The analogy I use for this is like going to the art museum, you know, going to the art institute and walking through, walking up the mezzanine and seeing, you know, one of those big honkin Renaissance paintings and going up to it and standing three inches in front of it and being like, ha, this is a great painting. It's <laughs> of a toe. This is a great painting of a toe. And so that's what a stuck point is. That's what a, an unbalanced cognition is. We're taking a very small part and we're generating and extrapolating a ton of information from that. When in fact, what the painting is actually of is if you step back six feet, oh my gosh, this is a Pieta. This is a beautiful painting of there's cherubs and there's, you know, like Roman centurions. I, in my head, I just imagine this big. Yeah. Maybe, that, that, maybe that's the Loyola coming out of me. <laughs> yeah. Crucifixion scenes. Yeah. But, but that's kind of what we want people to do. We want people to kind of get diffused from sort of that really limited range of experience and, and material and step back and see what all was happening here. And this is just one example of a cognitive and behavioral approach. I'm not saying that this is what CBT is, yeah. but this is really when I had these experiences and I saw, I experienced for myself, the power of people literally looking like weight was coming off of them. Like they were taking off weighted vests and sometimes fighting that process and basically saying to me like, this is what happened, but I don't know if I can be okay with that. And again, working through that. Well, then there's grief or anger. So I'm just, yeah, again, sprinkling the Narman. Yeah. It's the iceberg, right? The anger, the guilt, and the shame is the tip of the iceberg. But underneath that is grief, sadness, you know, things that they need to feel, but these other ways of, of, of thinking about it have prevented them. So they've been feeling things that are very self-destructive, destructive to relationships. And so again, it's hard to deny that something is happening in the room. And I hear a lot of therapists talk about this with things like EMDR, somatic experiencing, that there's this palpable sense of something is happening that is healing in this room. And in my experience, I just couldn't deny that something was happening and people reporting that this made a difference in their life, that they were now doing and engaging in life in ways that they couldn't see themselves doing, that these cognitions didn't allow them to do because a monster doesn't go and have a loving relationship with their kids. A monster doesn't go back to school and a monster doesn't go volunteer. Like, And these are all things that happen, right? I'm not pulling this out of my ass. This is stuff that I've seen that it was sort of like, shit, something's going on here. And yeah, this is evidence-based. This is something that if people do this work and do it well, and I'm not talking about clients, I'm talking about the therapists. Right. If they do this well, they're going to have these same experiences. And so I drank the evidence-based Kool-Aid there. And, you know, as a social worker, I think especially I can't be an asshole and be like, well, this is the only way, this is the way. But it's certainly, from my own experience, it, it gave me a level of comfort and competence, right? That it's sort of like, I know if someone's coming to me and they're struggling with something that I can offer them something that I know will help them. Now, there's always exceptions to that. But to me, I needed that level of, I needed that chart. I needed mm -hmm. that one day my prince will come. And I knew that I could do my thing. I could be myself over that. But it was really comforting to know that there was that chart in front of me that I could look at. And if I got lost, we could come back. Do you have time to stick around? Because we're almost yeah. at the end of the, okay, cool. Because there are more things I want to talk about. I'm pretty verbose, as you can tell. <laughs> I'm not mad about it. So, well, first of all, I still hate it mm -hmm. because I'm just going to hate it. That's just what I, I've decided. I hate CBT and that's what I do. The yeah. hate has gone down from 10 to like seven. Okay. Based on I'm what gonna, you're I'm going to wave my fingers here. Oh, no, no he's going to hit the army. 
Um, I, yeah, I've just committed to hating it. <laughs> and, but uh, uh, I don't just want to say it out loud, but I'm going to say it. I mean, as I was like dropping the little like NARM nuggets in there, mm -hmm. I was doing that to say, oh, maybe it's not that different. Mm. It is in that we specifically don't use language like anything like and I know that you're not saying you're trying to get a client to do this, but you did mm -hmm. say a couple of times like, yeah, we're getting the client to blah, blah, blah. And yeah. NARM specifically is like, we don't get anyone anywhere. Sure. So obviously there are things that are different. The mm -hmm. conceptualization is different. It's got a lot of psychodynamic overlay on it, which is different. But I mean, the questions that you and I are asking clients are the same. Yeah. And I'm going to be sort of tiptoeing along the edge of my competency here. And, you know, there's people that I think this is very much part of their training, but we talk about common factors in psychotherapy. What are the mechanisms of change? What are the things that are predictive of people having a good relationship with their therapist, what is predictive of people, you know, that's where we get Carl Rogers, the unconditional positive regard. That is a common factor for successful outcomes in therapy. And there's these sort of mechanisms. And I'm, I'm really interested in that. That's why ACT appealed to me because we're getting away from sort of the, the paint by numbers mm -hmm. syndrome focused therapies to something that's more transdiagnostic, right? Where anyone could walk into our office and we can understand that there's common mechanisms uh, underpinning a lot of uh, psychopathology and I just that's I think that's more a, a product of my just laziness like I want a grand unified theory of therapy and just be like okay if I get if I know this then I can help people and it, it, we might be getting there who knows but and that doesn't depend on people being like cookie cutter either right you know right. we can allow people to be as individual as they are from a cultural standpoint from a socioeconomic standpoint but I just really like having that security blanket of mm -hmm. You know, these common processes, these common factors that, again, we know help. And to kind of speak to your point, I am sure that in NARM and in somatic experiencing and CBT and ACT, that there's these common factors that exist mm -hmm. within all of these modalities. It's in, a, mm -hmm. I think, you know, when I messaged you on one of our responses, I said, I feel like it's sort of like there's just different airlines that are getting to the same airport. Mm-hmm. That's the analogy I use that people are going to be really jazzed about their particular airline and they're going to say, oh, we, we have better peanuts on board and all that. You know, there's that. The, whoever has the Stroop waffles, that's my favorite. I, I'd go for that too. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I do see a lot of similarities and that's why I like, you might agree with this, but you know, I think that's what's nice about this field is that even though there are people that kind of get pretty high on their own supply around my thing's the best. I think there's a willingness to dialogue and to understand folks and to, and you know, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass here, but I think that it really meant a lot when you sort of posted that video where you're like, look, I kind of was presented with some information and I realized that sort of my, I was limited or I had sort of, I, I had blinders onto some aspect of this. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what makes us good at what we do is that right. we have to be willing to consider in some cases abandoning like things if if there yeah. is sufficient evidence that mm -hmm. this is is more effective than this you know and that was that was a big pill for me to swallow, and i still have a hard time with that and so i think that's a challenge to all of us that that's where i think we get very scientific and that's also something where me who tends to come from a more spiritual lens that's just kind of my pedigree and that's sort of how i see the world i really need to give give more balance and weight to also the science right that that's 
that's how we move forward, right? We have to be willing to kind of take in new information and then change how we see the world and certain modalities and other people based on incoming information. And, and I think that's what takes humility. And that's something, if I was to worry yeah. about anything in the mental health field, it's sort of people coming out of programs with just confidence that is utterly sort of unearned. And I think for me, it wasn't that I was, I was humble when I came out of grad school. I think for me, it was more just that self-loathing. Like, I don't know shit. Everyone knows right. more than me. Yeah. But functionally, it served me well because right. I was really able to kind of sit back in the cut, observe some things, and then over time, draw conclusions that sort of resonated with me in the work that I was doing with the clients that I was working with. So, yeah. Well, let's have a part two where you and I discuss the changes in the field because mm. we're both teaching yeah, and we can relate to what things were like when we came out of grad school yep. and went straight into community mental health type work. And now, now people can just graduate and go right into private practice. Yep. And I'm not saying that, that it's bad, but like you said, when we graduate, we really don't know what the fuck we're doing. Yep. And a lot of it is, I was thinking as you were talking too, like you and I clearly were desperate to like learn mm -hmm and take all that in and not everybody a gets that opportunity secondly can pay for these things if right. they're paying for it out of pocket and yeah. three they don't always want it right mm -hmm. so that's a part two that we need to have sometime because my computer is going to run out of battery and we need to wrap <laughs> it up but i have to ask you the questions of course do you consider yourself a healer um i don't know i'm taking so long to answer this um it's a big question yeah I think I am a facilitator to healing. And I don't know if that's any different, but I think healing has to happen in relationship. So my training says that there's nothing magical that I do. It's something that I sit and help people with, but that ultimately the healing comes from the other person and or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And... I would say that you do actually have something magical. And this is the hard part, right? Like people will tell me that too, right? Like there's just something special about you. And I believe that. And yet if I believe it too much, there goes the humility. Mm. If I don't believe it enough, then I'm not in my competency. So I just want to reflect back to you that I think that there is actually something magical that you're bringing that not every therapist has tapped into. Well, thank you. That's, that's kind. And I would sit with that. <laughs> I'll sit in that. Yes, there you go. Well, how about the term wounded healer? How do you feel about that? Yeah, when I was when I was starting out, and again, I I don't know who coined that term. Young is who we're giving it to, generally. Yeah, that's that's and I think that's where I first heard it because I said I worked, you know, I was in therapy with a union analyst and mm -hmm. and she mentioned that. And at the time, my Personally, my ego gravitated towards that because, you know, mm -hmm. I just imagine this shaman who is, you know, tapped into some mystic tradition who is beloved and feared by their community. So mm -hmm. right now, based on where I'm at in my knowledge of how much there is to know and how little bit I've scratched, I don't align with that term. But a term that I would align with, it's probably just as equally ego driven, but also just because of where I'm at right now is freedom fighter. Hmm. Yeah. A therapist, a psychologically driven freedom fighter. I wanted to take one corny term and replace it with another corny term <laughs> because I, I'd like to see myself as helping clients fight for their freedom. 
their soul freedom, their socioeconomic freedom, their freedom from oppression, their freedom from their demons, whatever it may be. And, and again, just like with healer, that's a shared term. Mm-hmm. We're all freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, do you want to tell folks where they can find out more about you? Yeah. Um, you can find out about my practice. Uh, I'm, I'm a little more private. <laughs> I'm not going to throw out uh, 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 social media links, but check out cbachicago.com. Funny story about that. When I was living uh, up north, the CBA that we knew was Chicago Bagel Authority. Yeah, yeah. It was great bagels. So this is not the Chicago Bagel Authority. So don't, <laughs> don't just Google CBA because you won't find me. So Cognitive Behavioral Associates of Chicago. It's cbachicago.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here. You're one of those people that I have such an affection for. Like if ever you show up on my Facebook feed or whatever, I'm just like, oh, Charles. And like this conversation makes me even have more affection for you. And I, I just really appreciate it again. Like you're just such a good human and the way that you have always engaged with my brashness and, and boldness. I, you're just so sweet. You really are. Well, don't lose the brashness and boldness. We need that. Somebody's thank you so much. It, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. This was really fun. Thank Let's you. Let's do it again. Yeah. Part two coming up. <laughs> you got it. Thank you, Charles, for being my amazing guest today. To learn more about Charles, you can visit our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.